Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim Wyatt, the digital editor, and I'm joined this week by Madeline Davies, deputy news and features editor, Hattie Williams, news reporter, and Ed Thornton, assistant editor. This week we'll be looking at what's been going on at the primates meeting in Canterbury, at how some of the faith leaders have been reacting to another mass shooting in Las Vegas. And our interview this week is with columnist Paul Valerie, who's just back from the Conservative Party conference. Don't forget, if you're not yet a subscriber, there's a fantastic offer on at the moment. Five issues of the paper, digital and print, for just £5. Go to our website, churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. Let's start with the primates meeting. 34 primates from across the Anglican Communion have been gathering all week in Canterbury. Madeline, you've been covering this. What's been happening? I attended Tuesday's press conference, which was when the Archbishop of Canterbury explained the consequences for the Scottish Episcopal Church, which I guess is what many people were anticipating as one outcome of the meeting. He confirmed what I think most people were expecting, that they would receive the same consequences, that word is always used rather than sanctions or censure, as those received by the Episcopal Church in the US last year, uh, which is really around the Scottish Episcopal Church not being able to represent the Anglican Communion in ecumenical discussions or to take part in voting and decision-making on matters of doctrine and polity. What kind of reaction have we had from the Scottish Episcopal Church? This wasn't a surprise for them, was it? These consequences um, were anticipated by the former leader of the Scottish Episcopal Church, David Chillingworth, before the vote on same-sex marriage took place. Um, he was very clear that this would probably be the outcome. Obviously, the vote went ahead anyway. His successor, um, Bishop Mark Strange, has since both written in the Times and issued a statement um, saying that he understands the hurt and grief that was caused by the church's vote, but that they very much stand by that decision and that love means love. So it seems that the Scottish Episcopal Church knew they'd face these, quote, consequences, unquote, or sanctions, as some people call them. And they thought that's clearly a price worth paying to move towards marriage equality and full inclusion of same-sex couples at the cost of not sitting on a couple of committees. My sense is that churches which make up the Anglican Communion do take into consideration how it might be received worldwide, but just the knowledge that it might perhaps further division or cause hurt and upset in other parts of the Communion isn't enough to stop synods and churches voting for what a majority of their members believe is the right thing to do. Last year's primates meeting, do they seriously expect that imposing these consequences would deter other churches or did they kind of expect that churches are going to decide what they're going to decide regardless of what consequences that might have in the international communion? I think there's a big debate about the extent to which the consequences even really take effect. I was at the meeting in Zambia last year of the Anglican Consultative Council. There were members of the Episcopal Church of the United States there, and they were very frank about the fact that they had taken part in decisions on doctrine and polity and have made the point that actually the primates meeting doesn't actually have the authority to bind another instrument of the communion. It's sort of a point of common ground between conservatives within the Anglican communion and the Episcopal Church. What they both agree on is that the consequences haven't actually taken effect. What's the mood been like in Canterbury this week? 
I think that's actually something that's very difficult for journalists to comment upon. Um, the fact is that these meetings take place behind closed doors. You can get briefings, but those briefings will, will come from people who have a particular interpretation that they want to get across, which as journalists you're relying on. I don't think there's any real way of us knowing exactly what the atmosphere is like. And you do have to bear in mind the agenda of people giving briefings when you're reporting what it was like. It's interesting to see that the mood music that's coming out from Justin Welby and from others in the communion is that even though the primates have taken this decision to censure, there's still this sense of unity and we are brothers together and we're trying to walk together despite the difficulties. I would go back to the meeting in Zambia last year. I went along in the wake of the 2016 primates meeting and there was anticipation that, you know, there would be tension in the room, that there would be division, that the consequences would be discussed at length. In fact, I was in the room that time, so the atmosphere was was very different and actually people did want to talk about many other issues affecting them. You have to remember that people across the Anglican Communion are dealing with a refugee crisis, climate change. There are areas where parts of that primate's church could actually be going underwater due to rising sea levels. So you find that when the Communion comes together, there is an appetite to focus on, on other issues. Your story this week on the primates meeting ends by saying how Archbishop Welby ran through a long list of issues which they would now devote the meeting to, including terrorism, persecution, war, evangelism, trafficking. Did you get any sense there was some frustration on his part that there's all these other issues to consider? His perspective was that they now had three whole days to talk about these other things, which I think he was pleased about. Even during the earlier parts of the week, they had heard about other um, topics. I know at least one primate had given sort of a testimony about being part of a persecuted church. And Justin Weber said he couldn't actually name that primate because he's under such pressure being a persecuted church. I know that they spent all of Wednesday talking about evangelism and discipleship, which generally does inspire and excite people. I think that's sort of a very unifying topic. There was a report last year which was quite concerning the level of discipleship happening across the communion and even a suggestion that things like the genocide in Rwanda perhaps pointed to a failure to disciple Christians. So discipleship and evangelism were stronger, we'd see a very different communion. Gafcon were in Canterbury this week as well. They held a briefing. What have they been saying about it all? So this was a briefing held by the Reverend Andrew Gross, who is both a communications director for the Anglican Church in North America and a spokesman for GAFCON. His briefing was kind of a very lengthy presentation about what had led to the division within the communion, taking questions really from journalists about what was happening, what was likely to happen, journalists anticipating whether there might be a walkout by some of the more conservative primates. But I would return to that point that briefings are coming from people who are not primates themselves, they're not in the room, and so it's probably more accurate to try and speak to primates who are actually there. Speaking of the American connection, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in America, Michael Curry, led prayers on Monday at Canterbury Cathedral for those who had been killed in the Las Vegas shooting. Hattie, you've been following this story for us. What other kind of reaction have we had from faith leaders? So the primates themselves actually issued a statement to the Bishop of Nevada, Right Reverend Dan Edwards, and that was read out by the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in the US, that's Michael Curry. He said in a video which was posted online on Monday evening, we are greatly distressed to learn of the dreadful events in Las Vegas last night. 
the scale of loss of life and the numbers of injured is truly shocking. We are sending our deepest condolences to you and to the people of your diocese, in particular the people of Las Vegas. So that was actually on Monday evening, but there was some earlier reaction. Obviously, you've got to note the time difference as well. Pope Francis was one of the first faith leaders to express his spiritual closeness to the victims, at which time it was quite clear that it was an extraordinary number of people who'd been both injured and, and actually killed. So it's 59 this week. Quite often, Episcopal Church in the United States has led efforts lobbying on gun violence. Has there been any kind of discussion of the politics or gun control, or has it been mostly faith and condolences and prayers? Mostly the latter, although there is a group, Bishops United Against Violence, which is more than 70 bishops of the US Episcopal Church who are calling for an end to civilian weaponry. And they said in their own statement after the attack that it's become almost cliched to offer thoughts and prayers. But as Christians, obviously, we must reflect, they say, upon the mass killings that unfold with such regularity in our community. And having looked at this, they say, as Christians, we are called to engage in the debates that shape how Americans live and die, especially when they die due to violence or neglect. So there is certainly a lot of anger there about how a civilian with no criminal record can get their hands on what was a haul of some 47 rifles which gunned down so many people in a matter of minutes. I believe the Islamic State group claimed responsibility for this. Has that been confirmed yet? Have we seen any kind of religious motivation on behalf of the shooter? Not as far as I'm aware. The motives were unclear. The attacker is actually um, a white male from Nevada. Police and, and other authorities are, are cautious not to make any assumptions until they found out more. Um, it's too early, I think, to say whether uh, religion was behind that or not, or extremism. This week's leader column addresses the massacre in, in Las Vegas, and the leader speaks of how the scale of the carnage inflicted in a few minutes by one individual has the potential to shock the US into reconsidering the freedom with which his citizens have been able to amass semi-automatic weapons. It also notes that President Trump has yet to make any kind of firm statement about the change to gun law. There was a revision of a law in 2004 which basically made it easier for civilians to buy weapons and numerous weapons at that. There is some questions over what Trump will do next, if anything at all, but he's been quite vague at this stage. Lastly, let's look at some of the things that have jumped out to us from this week's paper. Hattie, what have you had your eye on? So we've got a series of features during Good Money Week, uh, looking at sort of financial ethics and social enterprise. So I do recommend looking at some of those features. I'd really recommend that people read a full-page comment piece we have this week by Sam Wells, Vicar of St Martin in the Fields, who has contributed a lot to the paper in the past. His piece is an edited version of a lecture he gave on Monday evening at St Martin in the Fields as part of their Reformation lecture series. He really makes an argument that the church needs fundamental structural change and to really rethink its purpose in line with what its theology is. He argues about saving souls for a kind of immaterial afterlife, but about bringing Jesus' abundant life in the here and now. It's, it's a very thoughtful and stimulating piece. I'm going to take the slightly narcissistic approach of recommending one of my own stories about how a lottery-funded scheme from the Archbishop's Council has developed these wooden glamping, uh, which is glamorous camping pods that can be installed inside churches for people to stay in and hopefully squeeze a bit more money out of them. Our regular cartoonist Noel Ford has got a very funny cartoon. I would highlight a little news story on page six, which is that the Bishop of Worcester, Dr John Inge, is engaged to be married. Um, a lot of readers will remember that um, he sadly lost his wife, Dr Denise Inge, three years ago. The couple gave an amazing witness to hope in the face of suffering. So I think it's really lovely news to read. He says, to have found love again is a most wonderful thing and I feel immensely blessed.
Church Times columnist Paul Vallely, a seasoned commentator on political affairs, spent two days this week at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. I spoke to him about what went on in the conference hall and on the fringe. Paul, you spent two days at the Conservative Party conference this week. Um, what did you sense the mood was like? The, the mood in the conference was very subdued. In the, in the actual conference hall, which is often half empty, um, there was a, a sense of uh, uh, slight kind of down depression almost. Um, amongst the delegates uh, in, the, in the coffee bars, uh, people were quite upbeat. Um, and there was a lot of complaining amongst the ordinary delegates about both the leadership of the party and the various factions of that and about the media, who they reckon were kind of uh, uh, stirring things up in a disproportionate way. So there were these these two conflicting impressions you got from being at the conference, uh, one from being in the hall and the other from being in the coffee bars. And how did it compare to previous conferences you've attended? Oh, I mean, the, the previous conferences, you, you've seen uh, the party being much more upbeat and uh, much more positive. But I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the days when they were when they were in power or, or uh, or they thought they were on the cusp of power, and uh, and there was a sense of drive and optimism. What what you've got now is 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 the opposite of that: a sense of running out of steam and a sense of flailing around and nobody quite knowing what to do. And was there a sense among delegates that that we, we could have Prime Minister Corbyn in the next few years? Um, I don't think they actually felt it was likely uh, that, uh, that that Corbyn would become Prime Minister. It was their great fear, but they didn't really express any sense that they thought it was a, a serious possibility. I think the Tory party strategists, on the other hand, do understand that it, that is definitely a threat. But they, the, the party pay faithful, the, the envelope stuffers and the, uh, and the, and the knockers on doors, they, they, they seem to be quite upbeat still. And you were in the hall for Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary's speech on Brexit, where he said, um, let the lion roar. How did that go down with delegates? Well, it went it went down well because they they were they were wanting it to go down well, and it was probably uh, one of the best speeches, certainly the best speech from um, uh, from from a cabinet uh, member um, during the conference. That said, it wasn't it wasn't Boris at his best, and uh, the, the actual roaring of the lion part I thought was rather limp. There were other good uh, parts of the of his speech which were good, but it, it, it fulfilled the necessary function of of cheering people up and, and bringing them out of the main hall with a bit of a spring in their step. Privately, in, in, amongst individuals in the bars and in the, um, in the coffee bars, uh, you, you heard more doubts uh, expressed about Boris than previously. People are now starting to see the downside of Boris. Uh, yeah, he's a good speaker and, and uh, he's a jolly cove and all that kind of thing. But uh, somebody who, who consistently puts his foot in it and is not very sure-footed on, 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 on serious detailed po policy but on broad brush rah 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 speech making uh, he's still the conference darling another conference darling is jacob reese mogg who some tip to be a future leader uh, was he was he out and about and active he was very active he was a lot lots of lots of meetings and uh, he had a very good line in in dealing with uh, the protesters outside who when they shouted something uh, uh, terribly rude to him he would go over and say, now, what exactly do you mean by that? And he went, what are the things on which we disagree? And, uh, and, and they would then enumerate the things that they disagreed on and said, you're just a despicable person. And he would say, well, it's quite possible to disagree with someone, uh, uh, but uh, for them not to be a despicable person, I think you've got to make a distinction on that. And when, when somebody told him to, uh, to F off and drop dead, 
he said, well, if I did that, would you would you pray for my immortal soul? So, I mean, it, it's very difficult to uh, see rather like uh, uh, Boris to see him as a serious candidate who could kind of unify the party and, and be elected by the nation. There's, there's, there's too much of the, you know, uh, Lord Snooty of, 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 uh, of the cartoon about 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 Jacob Rees-Mogg. And there are so many of his views which are very clear, uh, but with which everybody wouldn't agree. Was there anyone else at the conference who did impress? Anyone who stood out as a potential future leader? I think Jesse Norman's very impressive. I saw him uh, at a, a fringe meeting with um, Sir Roger Scruton, and they were talking about conservatism and the um, environment. And, and they were that was very thoughtful, uh, intelligent, measured. So, somebody who you could see um, uniting the country, really, because he's, he's, got, he's got that sense of... Uh, of reasonableness, which 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 people on the on the right wing of the Labour Party would probably tolerate, if if not if not publicly embrace. But uh, there's no sense that figures like him are coming through yet. There's still a sense that the old the old uh, guard in the cabinet are, are there and and not not able to cut a way through uh, to, to 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 the new kind of vision that they all accept that the Tories need if they're going to do battle in a future election with Jeremy Corbyn. So that, that event with Roger, Sir Roger Scruton was on conservatism and the environment. Could, could you tell us more about that? Well, it was organised by The Spectator, one of a number of fringe meetings there. And it was it was intelligent and measured and, uh, and interesting. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of um, uh, tub thumping or, or the usual kind of party r- rhetoric. They were actually dealing with the issue in in some substance. And it was, it was sponsored by Coca-Cola, uh, who uh, put the case quite eloquently for the fact that... Um, if you reduce costs on things like the amount of plastic in your bottles, that's good for uh, for the environment. Uh, but it's also good for the company because it reduces energy and transport costs. And Coca-Cola are now talking about having a, a scheme uh, to um, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid that you could uh, collect old uh, lemonade bottles and take them back to the pop shop and, and, and get your threepence or, or, or a penny on the bottle, whatever. They're talking about doing that now with plastic bottles, having some kind of deposit. So, so that they, they were they were floating that, and um, there were, it was it was interesting because the the, the, uh, the there were clearly uh, Christian arguments uh, for stewardship, which which uh, are well reflected in some of the attitudes of of uh, of the Tories. And, and Roger Scruton was talking about how um, the environment ought to be fundamental to your vision of conservatism. Love of your country is is, is love of the land, and uh, and it ought to be not seen as a battle between short-term consumerism on one hand and long-term environmental concerns on the other. There ought to be a conservative way of of bringing these two together. Um, They didn't go as far as as Pope Francis, who in his eco-encyclical Laudato Si said that um, the problem with the environment was at root a problem with uh, exploitative capitalism, which which never knew where to draw the line. I don't think the Tories are ever going to go that far. In your column, you mentioned the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, saying that many Conservatives assume there's a philosophical incompatibility between free market economics and care for the environment. I mean, did you go away any more convinced that the two are compatible? Well, there were quite a lot of Tories in that meeting who could see, you know, an important uh, synergy between um, the environment and and, and conservative uh, attitudes, which which go broader than just the free market. We've, we've had a lot of free market conservatism 
and we tended to forget about the old kind of conservatism, which is implicit in the name, conserving. Uh, So there clearly is a a group of those people who are activists. But then when uh, Michael Gove, the environment secretary, uh, spoke about it in the uh, the main hall, it was less than half full. And so uh, that sense is clearly not mainstream Toryism yet. And what did you make of Theresa May's speech? It, It looked as if it didn't all go according to plan. Well, Theresa May's speech summed up the conference, really. The Tories are trying to find, a, you know, a new vision and a new way forward. And, and it ended up with a lot of uh, uh, coughing and spluttering and, um, uh, um, you know, a comedian prankster. Uh, and then the blooming letters falling off the, uh, uh, the, the background. And uh, it, it just seemed to be to, to a lot of commentators like a, a terrible metaphor for the state of the party. And, and a lot of people were admiring of her because, you know, she was very gutsy the way she carried on. She battled on. And at times you, you, know, you, you weren't listening to what she was saying. You were just thinking, is she going to get to the end of the next sentence before she has another coughing fit? She got brownie points for that, as it were. But at the end of it, people felt that we need the big vision and, and she didn't set it out. And so it may well be that they'll, they'll, they'll let her carry on for another couple of years until she's got Brexit done and it's time for the next election. But the chances of her uh, leading the Tory party at the next election are zero, in my view. And it may well be that some of these um, uh, MPs uh, who are uh, starting to um, rally against her behind the scenes uh, will will get a sufficient majority to cause uh, a leadership contest. But the problem for most Tories is that, you know, who would be who would be better than her? And uh, there's no consensus as to who that might be. The speech did contain some policies designed to promote social mobility. What did you make of those? Well, I thought the problem with them was that they were all in areas where Jeremy Corbyn had already promised more. Now, the Tories would say, uh, ah, yeah, but those are unrealistic uh, uh, promises on building more houses and and relieving uh, relieving student debt to a greater extent and, and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, uh, whether or not those are economically credible is, is something that, that voters will have to judge. But as far as the sales pitch is, is concerned, the policies that Corbyn's put forward are much bolder and 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 um, uh, more likely to appeal to uh, young people. We're told that you know almost num- nobody under the age of 45 is 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 voting uh, a conservative now. It's it's the old guard, and they they're very aware of this in the Tory Party, and they know that they need to find a way of appealing to young voters, and I'm afraid there was no sign of that at all in this conference. Very interesting. They don't seem to have the sort of um, movements such as momentum in the Labour Party, which really seem to harness social media and and sort of grassroots politics in in that way. No, no, they, they haven't got that kind of wild enthusiasm, rather unconstrained enthusiasm, uh, and nor the terrible self-righteousness of some of the hard left in the Labour Party. So you've got the kind of you know self-righteousness on the one hand, and you've got this kind of smug sense of entitlement you find amongst lots of the uh, uh, the, the, the Tory faithful. Uh, and uh, you could go to both conferences and, and not come away convinced about either of them, I think. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.